anything else I need to say, babe, on the good? Well, I'm excited to have Dudley here with us. Um, Dudley Hall is an amazing Bible teacher. He's a spiritual father. I've considered him my pastor the last few years, and um, I got invited to a group. I'm going to sit down here so everybody else is seated. I got invited to a group with Corey a few years ago, and he said, Dudley teaches his Bible study. And I go, really? I've been listening to that guy for years. I didn't know he lived around here. was local. And so I started going there, and that's how we connected. And I would say that um, I have been more astounded at the gospel. Yes. And the, um, the, you know, when the word says that the angels long to partake in the salvation we partake in. And if that's true, and we don't marvel at the gospel, we're not looking at the real thing. That's right. Well, that's the truth. And so uh, there's just a real, uh, I, I believe, anointing on Dudley to, to, to proclaim the gospel and, and teach from a gospel perspective. So I was really excited that he was willing to come and, and do four weeks on interpreting the scriptures from a gospel perspective. Um, I'm really excited about it. I don't want to take too much of the time, so I'm just going to pray and turn it over to Dudley and okay. let him do what he yeah. does. So, Father, we just thank you for your presence here. Thank you that you came and that you're here, God. Thank you for the good news of Jesus. God, I pray uh, that you would just anoint Dudley, that as he teaches, your grace would accompany his words. And your word says, Father, that the grace of God will build us up. The word of your grace will build us up and give us an inheritance among the sanctified. And so, God, I pray for open eyes and open hearts. I just pray that we would overflow with the abundance of the finished work of Jesus, God, that we would carry out and walk in that and, and release that in the earth. Mm -hmm. And God, we just thank you for this time, and we just pray your blessing over it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you all for inviting us uh, into your home, and thanks for giving this time. Uh, I trust it will be profitable. I'm looking forward to it myself. The good thing about uh, the gospel when you get into it is you, uh, every time you see it, it's like first time you've ever seen it. Yeah. And... Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll try to stay in the gospel, and, and you'll stay excited. Uh, this is my wife, Betsy. Does everybody else here know everybody here? Y'all normally get together like this? Everybody knows everybody? We have a few new ones here, I think. So yeah. We've got, John, John? We've got Jonathan and yeah. Melissa. Kaylee? Okay. Okay, I'll let y'all introduce yourself. So if you introduce yourself, nobody will remember anyway. So Jonathan, <laughs> just go around and get it, uh, figure out the whole deal. Jonathan has been a, a good friend for a long time. Uh, actually, I watched him grow up. I, I hate to admit I'm that old, but I, uh, I knew his parents when they got married. So it's a long time. Uh, I was only three then, but I, I, I met him. Uh, and then uh, uh, he married Melissa, and uh, they, they're populating the world with a bunch of girls. And uh, doing well. So you'll, you'll enjoy getting to know them like they will you. Uh, uh, you can come on down here if you, well, Corey, you sitting here? Yeah. yeah, I've been living with this lady for 46 years, and she's fine. She won't hurt you. Uh, you're not dangerous or anything. There you go. 
All right. Uh, what we chose to talk about, because it, it, no, because it keeps coming up anytime you're doing uh, how you, you do it, you're doing Bible study or you're talking about how do we live as Christians, it always comes up of, okay, what role does the scriptures play? And we live in an a interesting day when all over television and through uh, inter social media, internet, and whatever, you get all kind of people using scripture in a lot of different ways. And if you just pick up your idea of how to interpret scripture from all of that, you know, you're as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. I mean, you just, uh, and, and you, you know, I just hear people say things that drives me absolutely crazy because uh, they don't know what they're talking about and they're using scripture to back up something the scripture never, never said and so forth. So we, t we chose to talk about how to interpret scripture from a gospel perspective. And so that's what we're going to talk about for the next four sessions. Uh, I encourage you to bring some notes. Hopefully, you'll want to remember some things. And because we will continue, it won't be like everyone is separate and on its own. There will be a continuation as we work through it. Uh, Corey is taping it so that if you were to miss a class, other than being cursed by the rest of the class, you could catch up <laughs> by getting the, the uh, recording of it. Uh, you'll, you'll tell them how to do that, I guess, Corey? We'll coordinate that. Yeah. Okay. Maybe at the end we'll have a deal. You can give, everybody can sign up and give your email address, and then we'll circulate it. Okay. All right. So uh, why, why, do, why do we want to read and interpret Scripture? So let, let's, uh, let, let me find out why. Why did you come to this thing? Why, do you, why should any of us want to know what the Scriptures say? Why? Why, why do you want to know God and why are you here? To fulfill the purpose, I guess. So we know what we believe. I mean, why do you want to know what you believe? To me, so when I think boot. of the word, when I think of the Bible, I think of it being a diary. So like me and my wife have been married 12 years. And just seeing the diary of her heart and knowing like what's on her mind, what's on her heart, because it's a relationship and I'm actually in love. Yeah. So you're reading God's diary, if you would? Yep. Okay. Good way of putting it. Story. Uh, anybody else want to chime in? Why, why, why do we need to read the Bible? I think uh, in Proverbs, attend to my ear, incline your ear to my sayings, for there is life to those who find them, and healing and health to the flesh. I want God's life. And so I want to know how to adapt that into how to bring that into my life. And Clearly says that's the way to do it, so I want it. However, we're serving God, that's what I want. Yeah. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I was thinking since God made us, that we should want to know what He wants us to do and how He wants us to behave and how He wants us to live and what gives Him meaning and what our future is. Okay. Mm. And 
Search out. Search out. I know what, what's, what's in. Okay. Uh, lots of answers are given to that when I ask it around the, around the country through the years. One is why, why should we deal how to live? Well, why, why do you want to know how to live? I mean, why don't you ask Oprah, for goodness sake? <laughs> uh, you know, well, people say, well, I want a better life. Well, what does better mean? You mean you want more money? You want more comfort? You want less pain? You know, what, what do you want? want better life? Uh, others would say, oh, I don't please God. Why? Why do you want to please God? What's that, what's that got to do with anything? Uh, he's fairly well pleased. I mean, he's, he's not fretting over anything. Uh, Want to do what he says? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I heard one uh, television preacher say, the Bible is an owner's manual. He said, when I bought a refrigerator, I got an owner's manual. So when I got saved, I got an owner's manual. So I read the Bible to tell me how to operate life. And I thought, yeah, I remember betting I bought a refrigerator back about 2000 I got an owner's manual and I have never opened it (laughs) and if I did I would only turn to that one page you know the troubleshooting page you know the one that says if the light won't come on plug it in you know whatever it's like man that's such a low view of scripture owner's manual you know it's like okay it's a rule book it's a moral book it's a a book of stories, it's a book of principles and whatever. Uh, the reason we want to read scripture, and several of you hit on that, is uh, you were created to know and enjoy God. And he has, uh, it was his word that created us for that purpose. It is his word that has sustained all of creation. It is his word that became flesh and and participated in the mud of the earth and became the son of God, the the ultimate Israelite, the last Adam, the sacrifice for our sin, everything. And so the Bible is God's record. First of all, it's a witness to God's story. As Kenyon said, it's a it's kind of like a diary. It's, it's, it's a witness to, to what God says history is about. But it's more than that because it is a connect point with the living word. You know, we're talking about the inspiration. Why do I believe the Bible is different from every other book? Why, is it, why does it have authority in my life? Well, one re- well, there's a lot of wonderful stuff about it. I mean, if you want to study canonology or... Stuff instead of how did these books get in the Bible and, and just to study the, the difference of how miraculous this book has been preserved compared to other fragments of, of writers like Homer and whatever. Uh, it's just, just it's amazing. But that's not why it's authoritative. It's authoritative because it is a connection with and a witness to the living word. Apart from Jesus, the Bible is just another religious book. It will tell you how to live better. Problem is, you can't do it. 
uh, it, it will tell you all the good stuff, but you'll find yourself frustrated because apart from the living word, you, you can't do it. So, so the reason we read scripture is to, uh, what's your name? Adrienne. Adrienne? Adrienne. Adrienne, sorry. Uh, as Adrienne said, it's, it's, uh, it's more than just to uh, know all about Christ, whatever. It is to search out and know and encounter God in a living way. And when, when you read scripture, if you don't encounter the living word, if you don't encounter Christ, you go away less than you could have had you, had you interpreted it right. It should be a, an encounter with Jesus. So, so all scripture must be uh, read in relationship to what is it saying about Jesus? Uh, if we had time, I would give you some exercises that we could do. But we'll do one. We'll look at one. Look, at, uh, look over to Ecclesiastes. One of those exciting books in the Bible. You read it and just full of joy. Uh, Ecclesiastes in the middle of the Bible. If you're not used to it, uh, of course, I don't know where it is on your iPhone. You just have to find it, Corey. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, uh, verse 15. And sometimes I'll give people this assignment if we're in a meeting like this. I say, okay, here's your text that's been assigned to you by the leaders of your church. And you are going to be teaching junior high boys and girls on Sunday. And this is the text that you must teach from. So you need to exegete this text. You need to apply this text. You need to illustrate this text. And this text is going to be the word of God for your kids this Sunday. And when you send them home, you're going to send them home with instructions that came out of this text. Okay, so here's the text. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this and from that with, uh, withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. Okay, that's your text. So what are you going to tell your kids? It says, the writer says, I've seen, I've seen it all. I've seen people who do right, and they wind up dying young. I've seen people who do wicked, and they live forever. Well, not forever, but a long time. And they drive Cadillacs and Mercedes and Lexus and whatever. And I've seen people doing right, and they, they barely got a bicycle. And uh, it just doesn't seem like it totally pays. Doesn't seem right. So my conclusion is don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wicked. Is that what you want your teenagers to go home with? <laughs> I mean, can you be overly righteous? You can be self-righteous. That's not what it says. It says you can be overly righteous. Uh, you, want, you want your kids to be a little wicked? 
<laughs> Not overly wicked, but just a little wicked. So, so what's, the, what's the answer to that whole thing? Well, you say, well, the answer is don't, don't assign that text to you. Pick another text. <laughs> you know, pick one that says, don't touch that woman or you'll go to hell. <laughs> you know, Proverbs 5 or 7. Uh, well, it's in the Bible, so there, there's a reason for it. And uh, it, it does reveal Christ in, in unusual ways. But uh, th this, uh, this particular text absolutely forces you to interpret in context. You have to interpret in context of the book and the purpose of the book. If you don't know why the book was written or what the book is trying to say, you can't take a piece out of it and interpret it just like you couldn't out of any other book unless it is just a book of rules. And so, uh, so Ecclesiastes, first of all, it's a kind of literature. It's called wisdom literature. There's several of those in the, in the Bible, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, maybe even Ruth. But it's a kind of literature that has its own kind of has its own rules of interpretation, just like poetry has, a, has its rule of, of interpretation as opposed to historical writing or, or biographies or whatever. Every kind of literature kind of has a way that you interpret it. Otherwise, you wind up with all kind of screwed up stuff. So people who reacted against liberalism back in the mid-20th century when the, literal, when the liberals were saying, you can't trust the Bible, it's got too many miracles and all that kind of stuff, a lot of superstition, a lot of stuff in there. So you, just, you, you, can't, you can't trust it totally. The fundamentalists reacted to that and said, we believe every word in the Bible is true and you've got to interpret it literally. Well, they jumped out of the frying pan into the fire type deal. They overreacted. And in their definition of literal, they did away with contextual interpretation. So first of all, we would say, uh, we'd we would go and we'd say, all right, the book of Ecclesiastes is written uh, as wisdom literature. So it's written like a poet would talk in picturesque language. And secondly, we understand that wisdom literature is telling you how to observe life and how to observe what's going on, the dynamics of life, and how to come to conclusions out of it, discerning wisdom from folly. Now, commonly, it's expected that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. Not everybody agrees with that, but the word just simply means preacher, proclaimer, the one who, who tells it. Uh, so, but uh, it's got a lot of Solomon's characteristics. So, so we'll say Solomon wrote it. Solomon also compiled the Proverbs. It's interesting that in the Proverbs, that compilation of his writings and a few others, the whole purpose of that book is to say, okay, here is what life looks like if you observe it with the aid of God's explanation. That's Proverbs. Ecclesiastes is written to say, here's what life looks like if you observe it without God's explanation. 
the key word and a key phrase in Ecclesiastes is under the sun. I looked at all these things under the sun. I tried women. Looked like it would work, didn't. Tried wine, didn't work. Finest wines I could get. You know, and, and if you Solomon, he had, he had a bunch of wives and a lot of wine. And wisdom, man's wisdom, and wealth, and all this stuff. He said, I tried all of that. And after a little while, all of it lost its glow. And I conclude, if you don't take God's uh, perspective in, into consideration, I conclude it's all vanity. So if you understand that's what he's saying in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, you can read that and you go, okay. That's exactly why the Republicans and the Democrats always try to aim for the warm middle. Because they're, they're not taking God's perspective in the whole deal. They're trying to figure out the right way to attract the most people. And the most people don't want to be either overly righteous or overly wicked. They just want to, be, they just want to have human flourishing in our country without there being any kind of uh, boundaries and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, just a good illustration of how you can misinterpret Scripture but here's what I would bet for most of you, since, since you're Christians. If you were assigned that, you would go and you wouldn't teach that scripture. You would read that scripture and you would say, now look, don't be self-righteous and, and don't be uh, promoting your righteousness. Just be right. And, uh, and all he's meaning by don't be wicked here is, is, you know, don't associate with people with. In other words, you would read your already view of Christianity into the scripture instead of letting the scripture speak because you know that's wrong and so you would read into it well that's what happens a lot of time to us instead of letting the scripture talk we think we already know and so we read it and that's what's called illuminism illuminism is when you read the scripture and you go okay what do you think it says well, to me, it means so-and-so and so-and-so. And so. Oh, well, that's it. What do you think? Well, to me, it means so-and-so. Well, what do you think? Well, to me, it means so-and-so. Well, all of us are coming at it from our deal, and we're, we're injecting our views on Scripture rather than letting the Scripture display what it wants to say to us. And so we, we stay with our own bondage, and we stay with our own perspectives, and nothing changes, except we get proud about the fact that we now think we understand that scripture. So, uh, so uh, we're to know God in, uh, th through the scripture. So let, let's look at uh, one of my favorite texts to illustrate this. Uh, Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Last chapter in Luke. We have here a story of hermeneutics as taught by Jesus. The word hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. Uh, I wrote, I wrote huh? hermeneutics, H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, a study of interpretation. Uh, Several years ago, in the middle of the whole Left Behind series, you know, when everybody's doing the movies and the books and everybody's reading Left Behind, 
and all that kind of stuff. I, I just had all I could take. And so I wrote a book called uh, Glad to be Left Behind. Uh, because the scripture, if you let the scripture speak, when Jesus says there were two women in the, at the mill and one was taken and the other was left, the one that was taken was taken away in destruction. The one that was left you know, got, got to stay. And uh, if two, two people are in the bed, one's taken, one's left. He ain't talking about no rapture there, at least not a good rapture. He's talking about judgment. So it's like, if that's going to happen, I want to be the one that stays. Because the others are, are taken and thrown away. They're in the, in the judgment. So, Plus, I, I don't believe in all that stuff. Uh, I, I believe that God has done such a fabulous work in Christ. And since Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent us the same spirit that raised him from the dead, that we can get done what he wants us to get done down here. And we don't need to sit around hoping we can get out of here and hoping the rapture is going to happen in a few days. I mean, that's laziness, that's irresponsibility, and it's stupid hermeneutics, if you really want to know what I think. <laughs> so, uh, the, uh, so anyway, in the middle of that, I, I wrote this book, and I wrote it in a kind of a narrative deal, and I had four, four or five 20-something-year-old couples, 20-something-year-olds, uh, 20, 20 meeting with this older guy, and they were discussing things of life and hermeneutics and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I, my, my character was Uncle Herm. And only a few people ever figured out why his name was Uncle Herm. <laughs> but he was, he was interpreting things, the questions they would come to him, he was interpreting whatever. So anyway, you ought to get that. Well, I don't know if it's in print anymore, but uh, it got raptured out. Uh, <laughs> but anyway... Uh, if, I, if I just mess with your eschatology, good, because uh, I think by the time we get through with September, you might have a great appreciation of what the scripture really says about what's going on now and what we have to look forward to. There is a real hope, and it's really a lot of fun. But uh, it's interesting that this, uh, the context here, Luke is writing this gospel, and he's telling the, the narrative about Jesus coming and how he fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And uh, Luke uh, chooses those events in Jesus' life in order to make the point Luke is trying to make, which is that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the ultimate Adam. Uh, Adam. Adam was a son of God. Israel was a son of God, and Jesus was the final son of God. So he's making that point, and... He tells a story of crucifixion and how after the crucifixion, these, uh, these guys were totally frustrated because they had been with Jesus and had not interpreted him right. Their hermeneutics was askew. And so uh, he has actually been raised from the dead now, but they don't know it. Uh, some women have gone and they went, went to, you know, dress the tomb and whatever. And Jesus wasn't there. And they met these angels and all this stuff, this wild stuff is going on. And uh, so as they're walking down the road, seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, they're totally frustrated, believing that what they had put their hope in had been dashed. 
and that they had hoped Jesus was going to be the Messiah, the, the one who would restore Israel and all that. And, and obviously it wasn't going to happen now because injustice had won again. The Roman government, the Jewish leaders had combined with their wickedness, combined their agenda and had crucified illegitimately, unjustly, had crucified this person that they believed in. So, so it's interesting that the first thing Jesus did after his resurrection was give his disciples a class in hermeneutics. He starts walking along with them incognito. And he takes the scripture and he begins to interpret them from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. He shows them how all the scripture is about him. So he gives them a Christocentric view of interpretation. So we'll read it now that I've told you the whole story. Verse 13, Luke 24. That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? In other words, how irrelevant can a person be? <laughs> and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since all these things happened. Moreover, some of our women amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, get the point here. I mean, this is major frustration talking. And they're saying, look, women are lowest on the totem pole to be able to be trusted in a matter like this. In that culture, they were. So the only testimony they had in their rational deal was from women. It's like, I know they said that, but we sent some other people and they said, dead gum, what they said was true. But, I mean, there are angels involved and, uh, uh, I mean, resurrection, I mean, give me a break. So they're having a hard time. There's major frustration and disillusionment and confusion and all this stuff. And so this man that's walking along with them incognito says to them, verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So these guys were, were Jews and they had been trained in schools of of the Torah and the Old Testament. And so they knew the prophets. And so what this, this man, this stranger is saying to them is, you guys have read, you've read the scripture. Did you not know that this was going to happen? So, so their interpretation, their hermeneutics 
is being exposed every second here. Verse 28, so they drew near the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I did a series, I did a six-hour series on what we'll be talking about here for the next few weeks. And I call it heartburn. Because when you read the scriptures, your heart should burn. If you're letting Jesus interpret scriptures to you, it won't be dead and it won't be like, I got to read it 20 minutes in order to please God. Uh, no, it'll be a class with Jesus showing you himself in, in places you'd never thought he'd be. And uh, so anyway, and they arose from the, that same hour, verse 33, they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11, all, everybody but Judas and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Oh, well, good. We've got somebody other than women now. We can trust Simon's there. <laughs> then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do, you, why do, you, why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me, see. For our spirit does not have flesh and bone, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy. I love that phrase. If you're going to get into disbelief, let it be because the news you just heard was so good you couldn't believe. I mean, they, it's like, no, no. No, couldn't be. He's raised from the dead. All the scriptures are fulfilled in him. He, he really has defeated death. No. So they were having trouble believing, but it wasn't because of bad things like it was a few minutes before. It's because of the news is so good. So that, that, that's one way I, I kind of judge whether I'm hearing the gospel preached or not. If, if I'm hearing the gospel preached, there'll always be that thought in my mind of, nah, they're going too far there. That's too good. Uh, back in the 70s, I, uh, I began seeing some things that I wasn't being taught. I, it was just my own frustration seeking the Lord myself, and I began seeing some things about the grace of God and the gospel. I was scared to tell anybody. Uh, and so my brother, I have a, six, a brother 16 years older than I who kind of fathered me in the ministry and whatever. So I'd go tell him, i said, now T.D., listen to this. And so I'd tell him some of that stuff and he'd go, ooh, I don't know. Sounds right, but I'd be careful about preaching that. <laughs> uh, so I was. I, I was careful about preaching. You know, I'd tell Betsy and she'd go, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so uh, I held, I held it pretty close there for a while, not, not because I was wise, because I was scared. I mean, I don't want to be a heretic. And so it, it was a great joy one day when I found out that an, 
an old revivalist, uh, Anglican evangelist from England who had been in the great East African revival was over here and I'd read some of his books and he was in Denton and so I drove up to hear him speak and he spoke on the grace of God. And uh, I was just like them. It was, it was disbelief or joy. It's like, man. So I went up and told him, I said, you don't, you're not going to understand why I'm crying and why I'm saying this, but thank you, thank you, thank you. Because at least somebody else in this world, and he understood a whole lot better than I did. So he became my mentor for a few years. And uh, so, so I'm just saying, uh, the good news is gooder than you think it is. But everything about American Christianity will try to dilute it for you because we're afraid of it. You know, we're afraid it'll give you liberty to be free. <laughs> and if you really get free, you, you, you know, you won't live by the rules. And, and people say, I'm afraid you're going to give people a license to sin. It's like, I found out people sin whether you give them a license or not. <laughs> uh, why don't we give them a license to, to love, like a license to enjoy God? I mean, if they enjoy God enough, then maybe all that other stuff that the world's offering won't be so attractive. Why don't we give them a license to just eat the cake so they'll quit eating that, those worms? So anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to get all caught up in that, but let's see, uh, where are we? Where am I? Betsy stays on deal. While they disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed for his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But That's the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. <coughs> then he led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands. He blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continuing in the temple Blessing God. So, what, what we learn from Jesus in the hermeneutics class is that He is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament promised, prophesied, predicted, uh, prototyped, modeled, the shadows. He is the substance of all of them. So, so that's what we learn from Jesus because he, he takes the Old Testament and shows how it was all about him. And so uh, when we read the Old Testament as if it were a complete, complete book in itself, or it, it still has the uh, present day application, we are misunderstanding that the Bible is a narrative and it was written with a plot, with its characters, with a conflict, with a building action and a movement toward a climax, and that climax is not reached until the cross. And after the climax, then there is the following action, just like in any good story. And we are living in that period in history. 
And so uh, when, we want, when we're reading a text in Scripture, one of the things we want to find out is where in the story is that text from? Is it in a promising part of the text, a predicting part of the text, a prophesying part of the text, or is it in a fulfillment part of the text? Because if you, if you don't get the right place in the story, then obviously you'll mess up the story. I mean, you don't take Little Red Riding Hood and, and get it out of order. The story doesn't make any sense unless you tell it the right way. And, and if you get it out of whack and you don't understand that the partial is leading to the full, then you will start applying the partial to your life and interpret the full in light of the partial. So, so one of the things he's telling us is the heart of the, the very beginning place of the gospel is understanding that Jesus is a fulfillment of everything prior. Okay, so Mark 1, you don't have to turn there, just trust me, it's what it says. Mark 1, uh, Mark is you know, giving his view of who Jesus is and what he's done and so forth. So it says this. After John was put in prison, Jesus came forth proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. Uh, Mark is very brief in, in all of his. That's right, it's, it's a short book. And Mark is always gets to the point. The favorite word of Mark is immediately. You'll tell the deal and he'll go, and immediately Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee. And immediately he was in the temple. Immediately the, the priest said, so he, he's all, of, you know, he, he's, uh, he's for a lot of us men who like to, just give me the bottom line. Uh, so he, he didn't elaborate a great deal in his introduction, but he says Jesus came and the gospel of God as defined by Jesus was the time is fulfilled. Well, that means then that we have the privilege and responsibility to look back and see what are all the predictions and the prophecies and promises that were there and how are they fulfilled in Christ and not treat them as if they are, that, that we're living at that time. That, but we are to see them as uh, shadows. So some, some of the things that we can get into later, the three major pillars of Judaism, the Old Testament, was the the relationship with Adam, having a blood relationship with Adam, being sons of Adam, excuse me, not Adam, Abraham. So they took their whole deal of we are sons of Abraham and Abraham is the father of the faith and he got all the promises. So we're sons of Abraham and that makes us in the elite chosen of God. We're in the, the nation of God. So, so their, uh, their relationship to Abraham by blood was really, really important. Being Jewish is very important to a Jew in the Old Testament. The other thing was that the, the next big pillar was uh, the law. 
the law, the Torah, was given to Israel to show them how to live with a God who loved them enough to bring them out of bondage and make a covenant with them. And he said, here's how you live with me, and here's how you get blessings is it when you live according to this, and if you don't, you get curses. And so the law was given that defined Israel. It made Israel different from all the other nations. So it was a dividing distinctive for them, and it was a, a guideline to their life. So they loved the law and, and valued the law greatly. Uh, as far as possessing it, they didn't value it obeying it, but they liked to, hold, to, to brag about it. The third thing was the temple. Because the temple was the place where God Almighty, Almighty Jehovah Yahweh God, came from heaven and touched earth. It's where Abraham sacrificed, uh, was going to sacrifice Isaac and God provided the substitute. It's where God said, I'll meet with you here. And it was the Holy of Holies where God himself, his, his glory would dwell and then, of course, there was the holy place outside of that and then, and then the other place. So once a year, the high priest could go into the actual presence of God with blood and God would uh, push back their sins for, for another year. So uh, the, the temple was really important. It made them really different from any other nation because other nations had gods, at, gods of the mountain, gods of the valley, gods of the sea, gods of... of Fertility, God of the farm, God of the dairy, you know, whatever. But they had a God who met with them. In the Old Testament, he had lived in a tabernacle just like they did, which was unheard of of a God because gods live in temples and in the clouds and in the mountains. And God said, no, build me a, build me a shack just like y'all's. And he, he did. He lived in it. And then, and then he, he, he permitted Solomon to build the temple finally. But the temple was really, really important. So if you want to make a Jew really mad, you attack his relationship with Abraham, his, the law, or his temple. And so that's why when Jesus said to the disciples, they were bragging on the temple, and he said, well, this generation won't pass away for not one stone will be on another. They went, you can't be telling the truth. When will that happen? That's Matthew 24 and 25. But, but the point I want you to see is how hard it was for the Jews of Jesus' day and of Paul's day to get over the shadows and embrace the substance. I mean, Paul had been trained in this. Those three things were the pillars of his own narrative. And yet he encounters Jesus on the Emmaus, uh, on Damascus Road, and, and he sees Jesus as Lord, and it's like, oh my goodness, my goodness, I've been wrong. Paul was a pretty smart dude, and he'd been trained by the, some of the best philosophers and theologians in the world. Paul took three years to go into the desert <coughs> and rethink his narrative. Kind of challenging to us, isn't it? It's like if it took Paul three years to see how the Old Testament is interpreted by the New, maybe we ought to consider a little time there. It might be a little harder than we think. 
It might help us understand why so many people confuse the two. They get the old and the new mixed up and, and they, 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 they keep on promoting shadows. They, they want to go by the feast of Israel. They, they, want to go, they want to keep some of the law. They want to keep, follow some of the principles. They, they, they want to keep the Sabbath. You know, they, 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 they think the temple's got to be rebuilt. Uh, you know, all this confusing stuff. So it would help us to understand that, yeah, it's a big deal that Jesus came and, and that that was a, an earth-shaking, radical revelation that forced people to repent. Now, repentance, you know, I'm afraid in most of our culture, I don't know about, about you guys, most of you are quite a bit younger, but in my, my generation, repentance was always related to sinful action. You know, it's like repent of your sin. Quit drinking, quit smoking, quit running around, quit, quit, quit. I can remember uh, being going to a little Baptist church when I was a kid, and it was, it was rural down in Alabama, and we were all farmers. And so uh, the time you had revival meetings was like in July when the farmers had, the, uh, had laid their crops by, and that's when they could come to church. So that's why you had the meeting then. And uh, everything happened then. I mean, have a visiting preacher in, and he preached on salvation, holiness, repent, rededicate your life. That's when everybody rededicated life, you know. And uh, it was not uncommon to see people at the altar call at the end of the service go up and and lots of crying, lots of snot and slobber and stuff and uh, throw in their cigarettes on the altar or, you know, whatever. Uh, sometime a thing of moonshine would come out and <laughs> whatever the person was convicted of, you know, you'd come and you give it up. And uh, I just, I remember as a kid before I was really convicted of much, it's like, man, I don't know what that repentance thing is, but it don't look like no fun. Uh, and then, then later I was feeling guilty and it's like, I need to repent. And, uh, I sure hate to go forward and tell everybody how bad I am. And I sure hope I don't cry and my nose don't run and all that kind of stuff. So, so for me, I had a real small understanding of repentance. I saw repentance as changing from being a bad little boy to be trying to be a better little boy. Well, that technically is the meaning. It means to, to repent means to change. But the actual word is metanoia, which means change your mind. Change the way you're thinking. Change the way you're determining reality. And that's the repentance Jesus was demanding here in Mark 1.14. He was saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. You've been thinking it was coming. You've been thinking it was physical, natural, temporal. You thought it was about military you thought it, it, it was about another uh, the, the Jewish nation becoming a military might and suppressing the others. You've been thinking of it in those terms. You've been thinking of it in shadow language. It has come now, and I am here, and you've got to learn how to identify it the way I identify it. And so the whole story of the three years of Jesus with his disciples was he kept, they kept running into things, and he would go, yeah, I know you don't get it. Here is what it's, here's the real deal. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. 
you thought it was about land and temples and laws. It's really about the inheritance of my life. It's about my presence with you. It's about love that I will put within you that will cause you to live beyond the law. It's, it's about bigger, better things. The inheritance is not the land between the river and the sea that y'all think are so wonderful. But I'm going to give you the whole earth. And not only that, I'm going to give you the whole life of Christ. So, so why would you settle for a little piece of real estate when you could have everything that Jesus deserves because you're a joint heir with him? So, so, so the whole New Testament, see, is about repentance. Uh, and pretty soon you start looking forward to it. It's like, I know, some, I know I must be holding on to the wrong thing here because there's not a lot of joy in that. And then, and then the Lord opens your eyes and shows you Jesus in it, and you go, whoa, I'm changing my mind. I am not just a sinner saved by grace. I am a sinner saved by grace, but I'm also a son of God with, with, with son rights. And I have access to the Father, and he loves me as much as the Father loves the eternal son. And he has given me the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, and I have the mind of Christ because I am in him. Yeah. Uh, that's better. So I think I'll I'll repent and quit believing the condemnation that I've been listening to and the disqualification that I've been hearing and I think maybe I'll just I think I'll just dare to believe the good news. Well see I'm repenting. And when I repent by changing my definition of reality my behavior changes. So, so, so nobody has to stand up and say, you've got to quit so-and-so. Well, if, if the gospel is proclaimed and heard, the, the joy that comes in displaces all the other stuff. I mean, Jesus did not have to say to the guys on the Emmaus Road, y'all quit being so down in the mouth, for goodness sake. This is not going to help us build a church. Y'all are so sad looking. Smile, for goodness sake. Can't you think of something positive? Look, there's flowers growing out here. <laughs> you know? Come on, be positive. Confess positive things. Y'all quit being so sad. That's sinful. He didn't have to tell them to be joyful once he showed them him in all the scriptures. Sometimes you had to calm them down. So, so, so that... That, that is the nature of seeing Christ in the, uh, in the scriptures. Wherever you look, you find him. And, and when you find him, when you really find him, you don't try to put him in it, but you just find him there, then, uh, then he explains the scripture and you, you can encounter the, the living Christ. Okay? Uh, I know I'm kind of in the middle of stuff, but my commitment to myself was at 8 o'clock, I would stop and let you ask questions. So, what are your questions? I have one. Um, I hope this doesn't go chase a white rabbit, but um, now the disciples, they didn't have the New Testament. All they had was the old. Mm-hmm. But something caused them to transform. Mm-hmm. So 
what, how do you bridge the gap between, I love the word of God, but it's, it's the road, it's not the destiny. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So how do you, how do you teach a generation that the Bible in itself could, I mean, this may sound offensive, but basically can be an idol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it becomes the destiny, if the destiny is to know the information in the scripture, to be able to answer any question about, to be about Bible answer man, then you, you, you move into bibliolatry, where the, where the Bible is the goal. And that, that trust me, I, I know that temptation, and I know lots of people who live there since I you know, in my own training, going through seminary and teaching the whole deal, I, there, there, is a, there is an idol and a spirit that works with it that brings you a sense of satisfaction when you know more than anybody else knows about Scripture. And, but if, the, the thing that tears you down is knowing, knowing the Bible and treating the Bible as the end rather than as the road as Kenyon said, is uh, it won't produce joy. Uh, and I'm not talking about a giddiness about joy. Joy is, is true human flourishing. When, when you have a sense of destiny, a sense of, of uh, who God is and who you are, and not, you're not getting the two mixed up, and you have a proper sense of Humility in that you are a son of God, but you, you're not God. And uh, joy is, is having that confidence that you are always with him. Not that he has done something in you to make you not need him anymore. He will never do anything in you to make you not need him anymore. You are all that you are and all that you have is because you are in him. And so he, he is always there. So, uh, so there's always that danger of seeing, of treating the Bible as the end, the destiny. And if you want a biblical reference for it, it's, it's just go back to the Garden of Eden where there were two trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And when you can make the Bible the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means I know it so well, I don't, I don't really need to have the dependence, the relationship with the Lord I just know the Bible. I know everything it says, right, wrong, whole deal. I know every prophecy in it. I know everything you're not supposed to do, everything you're supposed to do. So you, that's, that's, you've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, and you're not dependent upon him. So I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but. Mm -hmm. I have a question. Yeah. Um, so um, you referenced, like, you know, you concentrated on the, the river, the land between the river and the ocean. It said, I'm, I, I am all, right? It says, you come to me, you know, knock and I'll do it, you come to my Lord. And so I feel like the gospel is good news, 
right? And it's good news to the poor, it's good news to the rich, it's good news to everybody. But sometimes, like, example, when John the Baptist was in prison, he was questioned, right. like, are you truly the Christ? I, know, I mean, I know I set the way for you, but are you yeah. really Christ? Because I'm here, and you said this, and I'm about to get my head cut off. Yeah. And he hit his head and got cut off, right? Yeah. And so, and but Jesus said, hey, the gospel's being preached. You know, don't worry about it. I am who I you say yeah. And so I feel like we, I don't know, this question more than the statement, but I, I don't I don't want to tell people, hey, come to God and he's going to cut butterflies with you and life is going to be Right? Um, because it wasn't for a lot of the disciples, it wasn't for a lot of Peter, it wasn't for, you know, and so how, how do you tell them, look, Jesus said, I, the kingdom to come, I, you know, my kingdom is not here, my kingdom is in heaven, I rule for my kingdom in heaven, and we are to bring heaven on earth, but how do you, how do you present the gospel to let them know, hey, God's not going to promise you that you're just going to be rich tomorrow and your bills are going to be paid, yeah. but the good news is, it doesn't matter because he's greater. You see, does that make sense? Like, how do you... Sure. Tell people that it's not a fire insurance, it's not a get rich quick scheme, it's not a, you know, it's not a whatever. It's it's like become holy, repent, like you said, change the way you think. Am I asking the right question of like how do you address people that think they're going to come to Jesus and all their problems are going to go away on earth? Yeah, well, I think you can tell them the life He promised you is, is His life. There's never been a life lived that's better than His life. He had some pain. He was betrayed. He grew up an orphan. Uh, he, had, he had no day. Joseph took him with a, with a lot of scandal. And he was, he was raised in Nazareth, which was you know, kind of like mineral wells. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, he was, it, it wasn't like he was the prosperity guy. And uh, and then he went around teaching. There were a lot of people around teaching, so he was just seen as one of many. And he had these disciples, and none of them, none of them were all that uh, prestigious. Fishermen were not considered highly skilled. They were skilled at catching fish, but they, weren't, they, they were not government officials or corporate leaders or whatever. And tax collectors sure weren't very appreciated. So, so he had nothing to commend him that we would call prosperity or you know, abundant life. And then, of course, he's told him that he's misunderstood by his own disciples, betrayed by one of them, and then crucified outside the city, which is where moral lepers were and criminals were. So there's nothing about his life that would fit the prosperity model. So where does that come from? Where does, because I know what you were saying in the context of, like, if you hear the gospel and it sounds too good to be true, then it's the gospel. Yeah. I've seen people take that model of prosperity and climbing the corporate ladder and basically saying, if that's not what you're experiencing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so for me, I'm like, I, I look at the New Testament, I'm like, I don't see that gospel. Like, right. To me, prosperity and gospel, the gospel is my birthright. Like, to know the voice of God, to know the heart of God, that's my birthright. My birthright is not a Bentley. It's not yeah. Cadillac. And so my question is, where, like, where does that gospel come from? It comes so out. We're using the Bible. 
Yeah, it comes out of a mixture of the Old Testament where the shadows had to do with natural, temporal stuff. God gave Abraham a land. He gave him a lot of camels and all that kind of stuff. So he was showing the blessings of God in a natural, temporal, physical way to, to point and gave him identity and all of that. So all of that is point and had a physical temple and a physical law and physical battles against the enemy. And so you got all of that. But all of that was pointing toward a higher truth in the substance. So if you don't know that that was a natural leading to a higher, fuller spiritual, you will mix the two and you will define prosperity in terms of money, land, temples, law, so forth. Yeah, that's true. Okay, let me tell you why, why I think God did that. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, before Adam and Eve sinned, their eyes were open and, and they could see God as clearly as they could see each other. But when they sinned, their eyes were messed up. So they ran and hid behind a bush and then got kicked out of the garden. But part of the fall of man is not being able to see the spirit realm as real as, as before. So God in his love will come to our level and talk to you at a level you can understand. So he came to them at a physical, temporal level. They can understand land. They can understand a name. They can understand a sea and a, and a river. They can understand armies that cut off people's head and they can understand kings that rule over people. They can understand a temple so he speaks to them in the natural, but he is trying to lead them from the natural to something greater, to build the anticipation. But, but when he got there, as evidenced by the, the guys on Emmaus Road, they were still looking for the other prosperity. So when Jesus was mistreated, it's like, we thought he was the king for goodness sake. The same with John the Baptist. John the Baptist said, I've been announcing that the kingdom of heaven was right around the corner, which means when the kingdom is here, the king rules and we're in charge. And here I am fixing to get my head cut off because I told the truth about a man committing adultery. So are you, are you the one or not? Is it further off down the road than we thought? <laughs> and Jesus said, blessed is the one who's not offended in me. You know, get your, repent, John. Let me tell you, what you said was true. The gospel's being preached. The blind are seeing. The lame are walking. That's prosperity. And so, so where it comes from, it's a good question, is it's coming from a mixture of the Old Testament and the New. And that's why I'm saying to you, you must learn to interpret the scripture as a narrative. Once you get to the cross, the cross defines everything. And so I don't, have, I don't have a right to look at anything in Scripture that I don't look at it through the cross. That's why Paul said, I chose to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what he, was, what he wasn't saying was, the only thing I do is just talk about that day he was crucified. No, what he's saying was, I interpret everything through that event and the dynamics of that event. So, so if you want to talk about prosperity, let's talk about the cross. So Paul in Romans 8 says, let me tell you what that prosperity looked like. 
Uh, in Romans 7, he said, oh, wretched man that I am, I can't live up to the law. Who's going to deliver me from this cycle of sin and death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For the law of the life and the Spirit has set me free from the law of sin and death. And he talks about the Holy Spirit has come to make adoption real in our life. And he says, look, here's, the, here, here's what this life looks like. You've been adopted as sons. You know God. You can, you can put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. And on top of that, when you suffer, we're, we're still in that groaning stage and we groan and we're part of creation and we get, to, we get to participate in the sufferings of Christ. But even then, you get to show the glories of Christ. And by the way, that is your purpose. If you think your purpose is to be comfortable and prosperous and have the Bentley, you misunderstood the purpose. Your purpose is to be an image bearer of God. And the God that you're to be an image bearer of is Jesus Christ who is the one who shows that he is victorious in the midst of the cross and in the midst of suffering. And therefore, he gives you a life that nothing in this world can diminish. So he goes in the end of Romans 8, he says, so who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Do you know anything high, low, demons, angels? Who's going to do it? In all these things, we conquer Wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys conquered, but most of you died. <laughs> yeah, we conquered. We conquered because we weren't living on that reality. That reality did not define us. So, so anyway, that, that's how we move from one level to the other. That make, that's perfect. Good. You only get two questions. <laughs> so Luke 11, um, the disciples ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. Yeah. Right? So my question is, corporately, if the, the, only, the only thing that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them was to pray, how come corporately that's so low on the total pole of problems? Prayer? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, there are two or three things in there. Uh, one is, and this is not an excuse, but it is true, a lot of people define prayer in terms of a ritual rather than a relationship. So it may not be as low as we think from those who really know the gospel because they may be walking in prayer. Uh, the, the other answer, however, is I, I do think we don't make it a priority. I, do, I think there's so little prayer going on because we still believe that God is waiting for us to do something in order to qualify for his blessings, and we're so busy trying to qualify by doing the good stuff that we don't realize you're already qualified and you're, you're a partner with him and the way you get stuff done is in partnership with him and you're praying and asking him to do stuff because you're his partner. That's right. yeah. so, but if you think you're an orphan uh, and you're, if you're getting your needs met, why talk to God? You know, I mean, if, I, if I'm an orphan but I got enough food, then why talk to it? 
But if I'm a son and I'm ruling with him and I'm not an orphan but I'm a partner, then I realize that God and I are, are doing things in this world and he's showing me stuff that I need to be praying about, asking him about bringing heaven into earth. So, so the more you understand your partnership, the more you pray. And so the less you understand it, the less you pray. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you, corporate prayer, I mean, a personal prayer, you know, you're, 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 you're praying all the time, really, because you know, you're living in the presence of God. And whether you know it or not, you're praying all the time, you know, I mean, because uh, you're talking and, and you're thinking and he's there. And so conversations going on, whether, I mean, you can talk yourself into thinking he's not, he's not listening right now because I'm criticizing so-and-so, but he is listening. <laughs> and so personal prayer is that, but a corporate prayer uh, I don't know. A lot of people don't like corporate prayer, including me, because it's boring. <laughs> because you're, you're, most of the prayer is people praying from an orphan perspective. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, you, know, we're, we're, you know, we're begging or we're trying to convince them of something and everybody prays the same thing. It's like, oh God, we know if we'll get right, you'll do so and so and so. And I, you know, I'm just thinking God's going, I, I've already done all that. Well, well, you know, why don't you just take that and go on with it? And, uh, well, I, uh, I promise it's not a question. It's just the direction. <laughs> um, I'm saying, so I played football, right? And so as a coach, they're trying to tell me this. What you, if you want to maximize your potential, this is what you do. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying corporately, like this to me, this question is more pointed at the shepherds, not the sheep. Mm. It's, you know, because we're just doing what we're told. So if someone tells me that Jesus is going to pimp my ride, then I'm going to, you know, then a lot of times they believe it. So mm. I'm just saying why, like, why is the prosperity being overemphasized and, and not like the seeking his face in prayer? Okay, That's, good question. Well, there, there, there's a whole, I just wrote an article today that I should have brought and read to you, and it's called, Have We Cut a Deal with the Devil? And my point is, Peter said, the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking someone he can devour. Well, he's got to find somebody who will buy his, buy his deal. And uh, he, he, he peddled it to Adam and Eve, and they bought it. And he peddled it 
to Israel, and they bought it in the wilderness. And everybody's bought it. And then finally he came to Jesus, and he peddled it. But, but it was the same thing. It was the same, same old deal. And here's what he said to Jesus. He said, I'm going to show you all his kingdoms, and I have authority, and I can give it to whomever I will. And I'll give it to you now. Now. If you'll bow down and worship me. Think about that. The devil is willing. Now, scholars argue about did he, does he have authority and whatever. He, the scripture calls him the God of this world. He has some authority. Anyway, the devil is willing to give up control of the cultures of this world to a Messiah-led but bloodless king. So what the devil was saying to him was, I don't care if you have rules and morals and ethics and all that. I just don't want anybody going to the cross. <laughs> That's good. And so what the American church has done is the devil found a dealer. He found a pimp with us. And we, he said to us, look, I'll let you rule if you'll just play down the blood. Just get your morals, be a moralistic deal, make, make, make your boundaries a little fuzzy, be inclusive in your language, tell people to be better, but stay away from that blood and I'll let you rule. Now when you do that, see, what the devil is saying is, look, in order for you to, as a church to do what you say you want to do, which is you know, make the world a better place and bless things, you, in order to do that, you've got to have a big, big footprint. Because that's the way it works in this world. Big footprints have influence. Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, iPad, Walmart, whatever. Rothschild, Federal Reserve. Yeah. So you've got to have a big footprint. Now, in order to have a big footprint, you've got to attract a lot of people. In order to attract people, you got to understand what people are attracted to. Wow. Now, the scripture says that God looks on the heart, and man looks on the outward appearance. So, you got to go for people who are looking for the outward appearance. So, you can't give them anything that would offend their sensibilities. So, what does a person looking at the outward appearance look like? He looks for nice clothes, comfortable life, prosperity the way we define it in America with the American dream. And so that's what we're looking at. So the church has said, okay, we've got to get the customers. And the customer's always right. Because if you don't give the customer what he demands, he'll go somewhere else. And so we've got to give them what they want. And so we've turned the gospel into something it is not. And now we've got the devil to pay because we've got the biggest footprint we've ever had. We've got more mega churches than we've ever had. We got more ministries. We got three in our area. We got three television networks that are Christian. You got more ministries everywhere. Less influence on a culture than we've had since the Great Awakening or before. And we we just lost the whole deal on on marriage. I just went to a big meeting the other day with a bunch of pastors. 
And the whole deal was, you know, we, we got to figure out how to legally do the right stuff because we're all going to get sued over, you know, over the marriage thing. So we're, we're fighting just to keep some of our rights, our, our, our tax protection. Well, see, the reason the government gave nonprofit organization and the church a break on the taxes because we were doing something in society nobody else could do. We were taking care of a segment of society and, and adding to the society that, that the government can do and nobody else can do. So it's like you're, you're giving a service, so we'll give you a tax break. Now the government's saying, you had nothing, so we're taking the tax break away. So how's our footprint working? We're losing influence while our footprint's getting bigger, which means we made a deal with the devil, and now we got the devil to pay. And, and, and what are we going to do with the homosexual and the perverted and the addicted and, and the guys in the pornography and alcohol and substance abuse and well, what are you going to do with them? You can't tell them that it's sin and that God would change them because you'd have to tell them that, that death and resurrection is the only solution. Well, that's, that's too exclusive. That, you, you couldn't say that because that would, that would make Christ alone the only possible hope of transformation. We can't do that in a world where you're trying to be inclusive and bring everybody in. So you've shut your own message down by your own deal you've done with the devil. So anyway. What's your website? <laughs> uh, that one will go on the stream. I, I write uh, on a website that's called the stream. And then... Is everybody in here on Facebook? Okay, good. Can I speak to the parents that had a question? Oh, please, go ahead, Karen. Because I, you know, in, in Romans chapter six, 6, verse 7, it says, We live no longer in obedience to the written code of regulations, but we live in obedience to the promptings of the Spirit and newness of life. And fundamentally, the church has gotten away from living out of your reborn spirit. And when you live out of your reborn spirit, you recognize your desperate need for constant communion with him. And then when Jesus was talking with his disciples in Luke, and he said, the Bible says, they said to him, teach us to pray the way John taught his disciples to pray. Not Jesus just teach us to pray. He said, teach us to pray the way he did. And so Jesus, that model prayer is an Old Testament prophetic prayer. And it's a declarative prayer about what he's about to do. But then in John 14, 15, 16, and 17, his instructions before leaving the planet, all he could talk about was the corporate passionate connection through the Holy Spirit in prayer. He said, up to now, you've not prayed in my name. Up to now, you've not been able to do that. But in a little while, you'll be able to do that. And when you do, you'll be able to present me to God on your behalf. But up to now, you've not been able to do that. But you're getting ready to be able to do that. And when you do that, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. When you present me to God, anything you ask, I'll say. So when you begin to see that reality, your reborn spirit cries for that. Right. So, it hungers for that. Yeah. So what's missing is what he was sharing with us tonight mm -hmm. is they're approaching the scripture with their eyes closed. Right. They're not seeing what's really there.
Because really there's a reality in God that when you yield to the Holy Spirit, if when I first got saved and his presence came in my life, I was doing things that are in the Bible that I didn't know were there because he was prompting me to do it. Mm. And then I would be somewhere and go, that's in the Bible. I did, but the Holy Spirit told me to do that. That's so cool. He will begin to show you. And I'm for, I'm for the realities of God's word. I'm for the word. I'm so for the word. His presence. You know, even scriptures that we flippantly say, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. That word is rhema. It's the uttered word. It's when you're looking in the scripture or you're interacting with God and his presence touches something and it highlights it, then it comes alive for you. I guess my question is more, uh, like I said, as as the body, obviously we have shepherds, we have leaders, we have moms and dads. Yeah. I'm saying personally, like I can't control what's being preached on a big level of influence, but I'm saying, okay, if if you're the shepherd and you're supposed to be leading the sheep to green pastures, why are you preaching on hiding? <laughs> why, like, why, you know, why are you preaching on how to build satellite campuses when it's like, I don't want influence, I want authority. Yeah. You know, influence, Britney Spears has influence. Mm-hmm. Authority is only getting, got when you, when my sheep know my voice and a stranger, they will not follow. So, like, that's, I wasn't really talking about the body, I'm talking about the shepherds, I'm talking about the so-called, the so-called apostles. Prophets and the, the people that have taken all these titles, and you know. So anyway, that's that's where I was directed. But I appreciate you know. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Yes, yes, yes. The word of Christ is the gospel. Yes. yes. It's when Christ takes whatever it is and it, and. Uh, uh, okay, we promised to be through at eight thirty. Here, here's your assignment. <laughs> assignment for next week. Uh, Read Peter's sermon in Acts 2 because we're going to talk about hermeneutics uh, from Peter's perspective. Tonight we talked about Jesus teaching hermeneutics out of uh, Luke 24. Next week we'll, our jumping off place will be Acts 2 and we'll look at uh, the Apostle Peter. How did he interpret Scripture? And then we'll deal with Paul when we have time. Okay? Sounds good. That was good. Yeah. Thank you.